Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cultured or Nah. As you know, on this podcast, we're fans of Basinics, mixing historical facts with some uncultured opinions. I'm your host, Shabnam, and today I'm here with my friend, Pritika Gupta, who's actually here on the podcast for a second time. So welcome, Pritika. It's so exciting to be back. Thanks, Shabs. <laughs> of course. So today we're talking about a topic that is difficult to talk about. Um, so I will call that up up front. So the topic is around cast, but I am no expert on cast. So I want to call that out. I, um, I'm not an expert on cast. I'm not an expert on the current state of Indian politics. Um, I think Prithika and I both know and are fully aware that this is a really sensitive issue um, for a lot of reasons. There's, there's a lot of people that have been at risk and marginalized for a very long time when it comes to this issue. And we are sensitive to that. We can't even begin to understand the pain there. So this is in no way to dismiss any of that. And it's in no way to fully pretend even to understand everything. All this episode is, is my journey as a person that was even less aware of some of the issues surrounding cast um, than I am today, sort of going on this journey with you guys, because I've been doing a lot of reading myself um, around cast, trying to understand the issues better. And all I'm looking to do in this episode is share what I have learned. Um, so Prithika, do you want to add anything to that? Um. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I I think the one thing I definitely do want to call out is that I, at least being from India, I'm very like aware of my privilege. I think that inherent caste is a lot of opportunity and obviously inherent privilege that does not necessarily ever get shared, discussed, or even broadly acknowledged by many other communities. And I just want to be very forward and honest about it. And I also want to very much admit that the thing about being educated about your privilege is, is, is also in some ways searching for how to be more aware about circumstances that you have not necessarily faced. And I think in this conversation, what I just want to be very honest about is sort of that quest to learn more and not necessarily have any of the answers, perhaps none at all. So yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, like I said, I'm no expert on cast. Um, I have not faced any of the discrimination that I'm going to mention happens in this episode, um, especially on cast lines, um, even on color of skin lines, frankly, I will admit that. Um, and so in no way am I even claiming to understand at all the pain and, and the process and the journey of anyone that has gone through any of these things. This is a very academic conversation. I'll call that up out up front. And I mostly just wanted to talk about um, two things that I've been focusing on, uh, two books specifically. There is a book called The Doctor and the Saint. Uh, the subtitle of it is Cast, Race, and Annihilation of Cast. And it takes a lot from an essay or, frankly, a speech that was undelivered by B.R. Ambedkar called Annihilation of Cast. Um, and it even the book actually is presented as the debate between B.R. Ambedkar and M.K. Gandhi. And I thought that this was a really fascinating book because what it sort of allowed me to do was challenge a lot of the notions and the conceptions of what we think is modern India, which a lot of it started during um, the 40s, obviously, with the independence of India. But what this book helped me to understand was that some of these debates go back thousands of years and, and how those actually sort of came to a head when it came to what the Constitution of India would look like, what are some of the decisions and the choices that were made. And so it was something that was fascinating to me. So like I said, this is a very purely um, academic exercise of me sharing what I've learned with you guys. Um, and, and I know that this is a very sensitive issue. The other thing I wanted to call out is that I've also been reading um, The New Jim Crow, which is by Michelle Alexander. And what that, that book does is it focuses on mass incarceration. Um, and so the subtitle of the book is Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And I think what's interesting to me, especially as a diaspora this e, is how much of the problems that we associate with America around um, race, color, et cetera, and, and the ways in which people that were historically underprivileged continue to be suppressed throughout generations actually is very applicable to caste. So in no way are racism and casteism the same thing. There are parallels in how marginalized communities have been treated in both societies. And all I'm doing here is I'm talking about what I've learned from reading these books. Uh, Shops, that was 
a really thoughtful way of summarizing it. And with that, I think we can go into what some of your learnings have been. I'm actually very excited to learn a lot from what you have learned. So friends who learn together, those are the ones. <laughs> yeah, and actually, maybe up front, we should call out that um, this episode is a bit of a special one, actually, because um, I usually, as you guys know, try to recruit people to be on the podcast whom I interview. Um, the the sort of like reversal here is that Brithika is going to be doing most of the interviewing of me because I was uh, consuming these books and doing a lot of my own research for a while. And one thing I really want to call out, and Brithika and I were just discussing this before I hit record, is that I actually really really wanted to have someone that was an expert on cast for this episode. And I wanted to have someone that actually maybe can speak to some of these issues that we're going to describe from personal experience so that it doesn't feel like I, as someone who is privileged, is kind of lending a voice to someone that that actually has been through these experiences or whose ancestors have been through these experiences. Um, so I will very openly call out um, my listeners. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you and I really hope that you will bear with me in this episode because unfortunately for three seasons now I have been unable to recruit someone who is willing to get on the podcast and talk about this so this is both an apology on that front and a request on that front I'm still very open to having a discussion about this so if you guys know anyone who you think could be a really good guest there is no reason why conversations can't continue to happen. It's not like just because I did an episode once means I can't do it again. If you guys know someone who would be willing to talk about their experiences here um, or is an expert in some of these issues, I'd love to interview them. So please send them my way. And so, yeah, before we jump in, um, Pritz, do you want to actually tell our followers a little bit about you? I know you mentioned that you grew up in India, but I think it'd be useful for everyone to hear a bit more about your background. Yeah, of course. Um, so hi, everyone. Shabs, thanks for having me back. Um, Shabnam and I go way back. We were friends in college. Uh, so I grew up in India. I, over the last few years, have spent a couple of years in Atlanta, Singapore, Bombay, New York. And now I'm based in Washington, D.C. and work in tech. So I do have to say, Shabs, I'm actually very grateful for you to even like have me on these podcasts because finding time to be thoughtful, aware, and in some ways, like, forcibly uncomfortable to learn is like really rare in the workforce and I think even as somebody from India I I can't speak for everybody I am definitely not not as aware as I should be about caste I need to be more of an ally and I need to do better in general and I really think that learning is the first step so thank you so much for having me I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about this yeah, um, glad to have you on yeah. So with that, are you ready to jump into this? I'm really excited. Yeah, great. let's do it. Shabs, thank you so much for having me. I think you've done a really great job of talking through, you know, what kind of discussion you're looking to have and frankly, like where you've been learning from. But I think the broader question here is a little about timing, right? Caste is in no way a recent conversation. I don't want to bring my political views into this conversation. So I, I don't want to talk about why it is top of mind as it always should be in India. But I think timing is as a question does exist. So so why now and how has the timing kind of affected what you've been learning right now? So, yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's important to call out that recent events um, and frankly, trends. Unfortunately, we have to paint everything to trends. Uh, and this is just a symptom of the modern society we live in. But I think a lot of the issues that maybe were not top of mind for desis and especially diaspora desis, such as colorism, such as casteism, I think we're really finally being given their moment in the sun, I want to say in 2020, 2021, right? And I, and I think that that was the first time I really started to think about this. And I will go into details as to why that is the first time I started to think about this. But firstly, I did want to start by a quote from B.R. Ambedkar. And before I even get into the quote, I'm going to explain a little bit about who this person is, because I, I frankly did not know. I'd heard the name before Ambedkar, and I'd always heard that he was um, a literary figure in India that was very prominent, but I don't think I knew much more than that. Um, and so his full name is Bhimrao Ramji Ambedkar, and he's described as a lifelong champion of social justice and civil rights for untouchable Dalit caste. Um, so he received his PhD in economics from Columbia um, in 1927. So obviously a lot of his writing is, is pretty old. I think some of his most, um, most 
hard hitting writing is like composed in like 1917, even as like when he started writing or like um, through to, to 1947 beyond. He's also credited for actually being um, someone that was in the drafting committee of the Indian constitution. And he was one of the first law ministers of the new Republic of India. And so he had a profound and enduring mark on Indian trajectories of democratic justice. And he really tried to do his best because he was constantly a champion for the Hindu Dalit community. Um, however, I think as we go through this episode, you will start to understand why um, some of these protections that he tried to layer in for the Dalit community, he was a Dalit himself, were very difficult for him to accomplish. And, and I think what this book did, did, again, I highly recommend people to actually read the book for themselves. It's pretty dense, I will tell you. Every time I read it, like I would only be able to read it for one or two hours at a time, and then I know how to, to put it down. It's very dense. It is extremely academic. There's a lot of... Um, big words used in here that frankly I had to look up, but it's worth it. I think everyone should power through. So the one thing that he said that I think really resonated with me, and this is right in the first couple pages of Arundhati Roy's book, there's a quote by Ambedkar, which says, if Hindus migrate to other regions on earth, Indian caste would become a world problem. Now, why is that such a powerful statement? It's because I think back then when he said it, when he wrote it, it was almost like it was a prophecy that has come true, right? It's almost like Indians were not necessarily migrating to corners of the earth, at least not willfully. I mean, we know there was an indentured servant trade happening in the Caribbean um, that the British uh, definitely propagated. But I think that back then, Hindus, Indians were not willingly migrating to corners of the earth um, to the grand scale that it's happening now. And I, I think that we have this luxury, I want to say, in um, as diaspora desis to often overlook issues of caste, because I think that we've constantly um, not really been exposed to them. And a large part of that is that if you have the means to migrate to another country, a lot of times you're actually from a privileged caste yourself. So I think that a lot of times we don't realize that caste is still an issue. Frankly, I didn't realize that it was an issue growing up um, in the way that I realize it now. And, and I did say that 2021 was pivotal. And the reason I thought that 2021 was so pivotal pivotal was Instagram trends aside, colorism trends aside. What I was very shocked by was this, to me, landmark case of California versus Cisco, which happened in 2021. So the state of California was suing the company Cisco. Um, and this case really got me thinking that caste actually is a problem in America. But I think we just don't think about it because, like I said, a lot of us are probably from privileged caste communities. And for anyone that's not familiar with the background of this case, it was a Dalit software engineer. Um, and I will also explain what Dalit is, because like I said, I did so much research into going into like what these terms actually mean so I can actually understand the content that I'm reading. Um, a Dalit um, software engineer was uh, discriminated against. So for now, I'll just frame Dalit as someone that is from a lower caste. Um, and, and I'll get into like what specifically that means in a second. But a Dalit software engineer was discriminated against by his Brahmin um, superiors, Brahmin being the highest most caste in uh, in the Chaturvarna, in the Fauravarna Hinduism system. And so because he was discriminated against for um, or his claims of discrimination by his, his Brahmin superiors, he took them to Cisco. And what's so interesting to me about this case is that he claimed that he was being discriminated against to HR at Cisco. And the reason they failed to do anything about it was because caste is technically not considered a protected category in America. And so it was not racism because he is of the same race and he is from the same nationality as these as the senior managers. And so they kind of again, like legally, they're allowed to say this, they said this is not a protected class. And so you do not have a case. Um, and so we can't do anything for you. And I found that the, to be so interesting that then he brought that case to, to court. And, and then eventually the state of California took this case up and they tried to try it in federal court. Um, I will say that as of October, 2021, the case has been dropped by the government of California and they are actually trying to bring it again to state court. I'm not sure exactly why. I think there was a mistrial of some sort and, I, and this was not something I could find a lot of information about. But the interesting thing here 
is this whole question of what is caste and what is race, because it's almost like Ambedkar's words of anywhere that Hindus go, caste will continue to be a problem really have come true. And that was something that hit me so much when I read the first couple of pages of this book. So going back to your question, Pradika, of why now, that's why, because I I was like, wait, actually, this is extremely relevant. And I don't think it gets the right airtime, because I, I frankly think that it's too complex of a conversation to have on social media. And I also think that it's just not well understood by even the average Desi. I think even our parents' generation no longer understand caste from a purely academic point of view. I was just like vigorously nodding because I was, I mean, on one hand, I think when I when I read about the California Cisco case, I actually thought it was the onion, to be very honest, because it seemed so ludicrous that things that crossed boundaries and countries and oceans ended up being social structures that deserve no place in Indian society, much less in any other society. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time that I needed to look into it to understand it more. And I'm glad we're talking about this now. But something that particularly stood out about that case was the number of people in the US among certain groups that came out to say that that could not be the case, right? That, that there could be no casteism that was ever that was ever experienced in, in a place like the US. And I think it just speaks to the fact that social structures may stay the same, but social fabric can ultimately like still regress to what it used to be. And I think that distinction is like so important because it one often causes the other, right? And I, I'm excited. And I actually, that's something I want to unpack in the next few questions. So that's, that is good timing. Um, but Shabna, moving away a little bit from from the timing aspect. Uh, thank you for answering that. But I, I think you touched on a couple aspects where you said you'd been researching it to understand more. And really, I think I think that prompts us to move back to the fundamentals. So, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. for your listeners, what would be really helpful is like an overview of caste. I know it's tough to stand away from it and think of it as a purely academic subject, given the way it has seeped into Indian society and often like still rears its ugly head. But maybe we can go through really just a brief history of it so that everybody knows really what you have learned and kind of what the context of this conversation is. Yeah. And and that's something that I actually think is the most important reason why I wanted to have this episode. Um, Very few people, and like I said, including our parents, regardless of whether they live in India or live in America, I think the modern Indian, frankly, I think, or even anyone South Asian, I will also claim, and because now after doing so much more reading, I think a lot of this problem is so old that it's no longer limited to just India. It's also like extended itself to Pakistan and Bangladesh because eventually like they all came from the same people. Um, And so I think that this is a, a very old set of problems. And it's something that I don't think is well understood for a variety of reasons. So like when I will, I will caveat what is my opinion when when I'm explaining this, and like what I don't necessarily think is like an academic finding versus like what what I think uh, I, I have found through just reading these books. Um, and so what, one thing that has been defined, which I think is funny that everyone defines this a little bit differently, is what is even the definition of caste? So that's something that I was Googling. And Ambedkar himself went through like four different definitions of caste, and he like dismantled parts of each of them, right? So the, this is this is something that's always up for debate. So I want everyone to keep that in mind. But basically, at its core, it's a form of social stratification um, characterized by endogamy. And I had to look up what endogamy means. So I'll explain it in case someone else doesn't know. But endogamy means like marrying within the same social group. And it specifically refers to marriage. Um, And so then that results in hereditary transmission of a style of life, um, which often includes an occupation, maybe a ritual status in a hierarchy, customary social interaction, and also exclusion based on cultural notions uh, of, in the case of South Asians, purity and pollution. So that sounds like a very complicated um, definition. And I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to unpack that a little bit. But to put it in terms that I think we've all understood, like at least heard of, right? And I think this is where as as a as a Desi kid, a, a diaspora Desi, I think this has always been confusing to me. The way I've heard caste be used um, as a term by Desis has been like, I'm Punjabi, that's my caste. Or like my mom will say like, I like he's Punjabi, I'm Sindhi, we had an intercaste marriage. That's something that Desis say a lot. Um, and so for a while, I think growing up, I always thought caste right. was 
Like, you know, like it's like Punjabi Sindhi, they got married to each other. Wow, my parents had an intercaste marriage. Okay, I think if I said intercaste in certain communities in India, that would have a very different connotation because like the way they're perceiving caste might be incredibly different from the way like my mother is using it, frankly, or how like a lot of uh, Indians in the West use it, right? And I think another way that I've heard it used is um, the more Western definition. And I only think I, I understood this when I went to school. Like I remember in seventh grade, we were learning about world cultures and it was like the four castes of hinduism and i think these are the ones that especially when you're talking to a western person when they say oh my god do you guys like practice the caste system i feel like this is the one that you refer to where it's like brahmin kshatriya vasha shudra and achut and i feel like achut is actually considered outside of the caste system technically but i'll, I'll talk about it so brahmin is um the ones that i think that everyone is aware but it's more like the pundits the more religious group um the scholars the priests that was that was traditionally known as Brahmins, right? Kshatriya were traditionally the warriors. Um, Vesha traditionally the merchants, the traders. Shudra traditionally farmers. And these are kind of the the associations that are known with the the Hindu caste. And Achuth being untouchable, that was sort of the term that everybody used um, in terms of like as it sounds, cannot associate with these people, they're outside of the caste system. So now when it comes to these questions of like, what is Dalit? What is scheduled caste? These terms are also, it's all very confusing, right? Because there's a huge taxonomy that we as South Asians like to classify ourselves in. So untouchables are further broken into additional categories. And I think that very few people understand this, but within untouchables, there's like Dalit refers to, that's actually referring to untouchables as a whole. And, and Dalit in Marathi literally translates to broken people. And that was kind of what just the Marathi word for an untouchable. Um, but then it became the popular, the popularized term used in the rest of India. Um, when, Anyone from, because being a Dalit and being an untouchable is so associated with Hinduism, a lot of people to break the cycle of continuing to be a Dalit for generation after generation, what they end up doing is they end up converting to other religions such as Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, Buddhism. And the unfortunate thing is that they usually continue to be discriminated by their community despite converting to these other religions because casteism is very associated with Hinduism. So they think they're breaking the cycle, but unfortunately, mental mindset, maybe some of the things that you're talking about, the social fabric, the social psyche is so set that a lot of times they're still unable to escape this. The Indian government, when you convert uh, from, from um, this like from a Hindu Dalit to a non-Hindu Dalit, you are considered a different category. So what the government actually describes as scheduled castes refers to Hindu Dalits. Um, Dalit refers to all people of all religions and scheduled caste refers to um, only Hindu Dalits. Now, what is scheduled caste? Scheduled caste is the government-friendly way of saying Hindu Dalit. Um, and why scheduled? Because that sounds like a very weird term. I, I think I'm saying it in my American English accent, but like if you are Indian, you would say scheduled caste, right? So I think like that's that's the term. And the reason it's a uh, schedule is because um, the constitution of India has eight schedules. And so one of one whole section is dedicated to defining what is um, what is the taxonomy here and like the description and the names of how these classifications are made. So that's like one thing about basically just the Varna. So when I was explaining the four Varna, which is Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vesha, Shudra, that is Chaturvarna. And so this, this is all known, right? And I, I think this is why it's very confusing because like I said, people use the term caste almost like throw it around for every single thing. The other thing that people I think also talk about a lot when they're talking about caste is what I've come to realize is actually a subcaste. So the actual Sanskrit Hindi word for this is jati. But again, in English, everything sounds the same. There's only one word in English, caste, and everyone uses that one word. But in in um, in Sanskrit, jati is subcaste. And so what uh, some, some sources that I've read say that jatis were created originally when um, the actual Varna mixed. So if a Brahmin married a Kshatriya or like sh Kshatriyas and Brahmins mixed and they married each other, a new Jati was born. I don't know how much that is true or isn't true, but the way it is used in modern India is, I don't know if you guys have heard these terms, but people will describe themselves as like, we are Khatris, we are Kayist, we are Baniya. And so I've always heard those terms throwing around by my parents too, because they'll be like, oh, like, 
Um, I mean, Pritika, you must know this. If you're a Gupta, you're a Baniya, right? No? What are Guptas? That's what I'm saying. Like, typically Guptas are Baniyas, but like, we are, my dad just says like, we're from Jammu. And like, okay. nobody ever gives you any clarity on like, yeah, what no is- gives you clarity. Yeah. There's no understanding. I mean, on one hand, it's probably, look, I think this is, this is the point of privilege, right? I'm privileged yeah. enough to never be reminded of like what my cast is because it has never played a role in my life. Right. Like this is exactly, I'm yeah. so glad you asked me that. And so like, you know, the, the fact that I can be ignorant enough to like confuse my community, community, I, I don't even know the word, like my statehood. What, what is the word? Like where my family is from. Exactly. Exactly. Versus the caste we belong to is probably because it has never provided itself or presented itself as a as a blocker or, as a, or an obstacle to like what I want to accomplish, right? And that's just the truth of the matter. And it is a very good reminder of just how deep that privilege is. If I, I think caste is being from Jammu. No, yeah. no, I agree. This is what I was saying. Like when my mom's like, we are Sindhi Punjabi, that's our caste. I'm like... Okay. And so the, the longest time I thought that was my cast, like I'm Sindhi and Punjabi, but like, that's not true. And then I think even now when I'm talking about being like of Jati, like, I don't actually know what my Jati is, which again, like, like you, I, at least, you know, that Guptas are generally Baniyas. I have no idea what Gulatis are generally. Like, it's not, it's not known to me. I actually te- texted my dad today asking him, are we Khatri? And he hasn't responded. So I'm like, great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uncle, if you could please like, like had an uncle, if you could clear this up, that would be. <laughs> yeah, but um, see, I don't know, but that is our privilege that we don't know. So yeah, thank you for calling that out. But yeah, but yeah. So I I think the one thing to understand here is again, jati is subcast, and it usually relates to what that group of people is known for doing, right? And so when I said that, like varna is like when they mix. The, it, it usually ends up being like a subcast is created. I think like what that means is like, for example, Khatri Punjabis, they're technically Kshatriya, but what they're actually known for in terms of like what their trade is, like they were commercial people. Um, yeah. Biased were usually like, they could be Brahmin, but they were like scribes and they're known for being very well-educated people. Baniya specifically were known to be money lenders. And apparently it's like in the, it's like in the Shastras, um, in like the, the ancient Hindu texts that Baniyas can lend money. And they are like the money lender sort of like demographic of India. So I think I think that's like really interesting to me that like these things were like sort of set and I'm sure they served a purpose at some point, um, which was like perhaps not the the way that things have mutilated now, um, mutated now is the right word, the, the way things have mutated now. But I, I think, and this is now my personal opinion. My opinion is that when we use terms of a different language to describe things of another language, I think we are very limiting ourselves, limiting ourselves further in our understanding so my point here was that we call everything caste because there's one word in english to describe this which is caste but again if you break it into sanskrit there is your varn there is your jati there is the region in india that you are from like you could be from punjab you could be from gujarat you could be from like tamil nadu those are all very different things but we are consistently just using the term caste which i think actually complicates the issue because this was not the native term that was used by the um indigenous people to describe what they actually are that's so real um sorry i'm just like nodding so vigorously because this this does make a lot of sense and i think I think on one hand, there's like an entire population of people or like at least a subset of them that are that claim to or or what I have seen personally, sometimes validate the existence of caste by being like, oh, this was the historical context. This is what it was meant for without necessarily acknowledging the way that it has in some way it has in many ways changed over the years or like evolved into a more complex social structure that has often been more negative than it has even been positive it is no longer a classification system it is it is a it is almost a mechanism to limit than it is to identify and i think that that in and of itself is the base problem right yeah and Um, and that's exactly the point that i wanted to get into next which is that people often claim that these different divisions served a purpose. And and there's some debate. I will say, I want to call out that I actually cannot find evidence of this um, because, and this is going to get sensitive and I really don't mean to offend anyone, but there's 
very little evidence when people actually try to look back at where caste originated, which was the Rig Veda. Um, firstly, it's difficult to have these arguments even, and I want to I want to call that out. I know this is going to get sensitive, and I really just want to call out that this is difficult to even argue because the Rig Veda wasn't written down, and so it's it's hymns that have been passed on. It's an oral tradition and it's been passed down for thousands of years. And eventually someone wrote it down, but we don't know what was actually passed down and the way this um, this changed. And also it's in Sanskrit and, in, and it's in a very ancient form of Sanskrit. So we may never know exactly how it was intended. I think all we know is how things are happening today and how they have been happening for at least the last thousands of years of living memory, which which we know that the system has been hierarchical. I know people claim that it wasn't meant to be hierarchical, but I think we just can't know that for sure, because and I think that's not intention, how intention doesn't really matter when existence is a, like is a complete uh, detriment to what we're trying to prove in the first place. Right. So I'm yeah. sure like there are certain systems that were meant to be like extremely extremely based on rule of law and order and like very different ways to maybe even like classify society and they just don't have a place in today's modern society. So the fact, I think, I, I really love that you said that out loud here because the fact remains that what it doesn't actually matter what the origins of something are if the manifestation of it is so deeply harmful to so many people today. Yeah, and actually on that, I'm trying to um, find this one passage, um, which I thought that actually like, Ambedkar did a really good job of calling that out too. Um, and he he phrased this in a way better way than I can. Um, okay, yes. So this is something that Ambedkar said, which I which I think is is really is really useful to keep in mind. This is quote Ambedkar. It is no use seeking refuge in quibbles. It is no use telling people that the Shastras do not say what they are believed to say if they are grammatically read or logically interpreted. What matters is how the Shastras have been understood by people. You must take the stand that Buddha took. You must not only discard the Shastras, you must deny their authority as did Buddha, Buddha and Nanak. You must have the courage to tell the Hindus that what is wrong with them is their religion, the religion which has produced in them this notion of the sacredness of caste. Will you show that courage? I think now you guys can really understand why this is a very sensitive topic to talk about, because ultimately it is a direct attack on the belief system that so many hold near and dear. And, and I think if we took the tone out of that statement, and if we took the attack out of his statement, I think the I think the the principle remains, which is that we just can't be constantly relying on what was the original intent of these shastras, these documents that were written. And maybe again, they served the time that they were written in. Maybe it was incredibly useful back then to have a hierarchical system, or maybe it wasn't even hierarchical and it was what it was. But I think we as a society just need to continue to change when things no longer serve us. And I think that's kind of the, the main point that Ambedkar was calling out. And I will say that when I say things like um, the, the Baniyas are known to be traders, I think I think the one thing that actually also helps me to really think that even back then, it probably was intended to be hierarchical, was that in the Manusmriti, which was written 150 uh, BCE, it actually suggests a sliding scale of interest rates. So it says that the divine right of the um, of the Baniya and of the Vesha is usury money lending and it suggests interest rates of like two percent for brahmins three percent for kshatriyas four percent for veshas five percent for shudras so basically the interest goes up depending on like and, and this is in an ancient text and it's prescribing the amount that you one should charge an in interest so I, th I think what's interesting here is is going back to what i was saying which is that it's almost like so embedded in the fabric of even the religious texts which is interesting um because then it becomes a very, very difficult conversation because at that point, the conversation is no longer just civil rights politics. It's about like something people hold very dear, near and dear, which is religion, core personal beliefs. And societies are organized around religion. And we know that. And so that's why I think it becomes really hard to really introspect and, and really challenge some of the things that we know to be true. Yeah. That was so well put. <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, I, I really mean that. I, I think you've I think more than just reading these books, you've clearly taken the time to internalize not only what people may have thought when they were when they were writing it, but also would that same line of thinking be valid today? And I I real I think that's the most important way to approach sensitive topics, right? Is not not just like proselytizing them, being like this was this was the way of the world at the time, and therefore it is the way of the world as it should be, but rather 
in, in some ways being critical even of the thinking at the time to say it doesn't even matter because today it would not see it it would not necessarily serve the purpose of the people either well that is that leads very well into um i think you may choose to, uh this is one of the questions i have wanted to ask you i don't know if you want to spend a lot of time on it but i do think it's worth like just getting a getting a few views on it which is after everything you've said which is so deeply evidence driven right like there's research there's thought there's books there's there's writings in academics in in academia and beyond but you know there's still people who say that the caste system doesn't exist anymore and to that degree what what do you have to say and in your lived experience what have you seen to be true yeah i think this this conversation um is an interesting one actually and and i'm going to give you an anecdote here and i'm also going to give you um just like my perspective of growing up so i think i think there is a stigma associated with the caste system and like us and and rightfully so i feel but um there there definitely is one right and and i think that we let me talk first about diaspora this is i think us being the cosmopolitan doing well in the west people that we are always want to be perceived in in the best way right and i think like india is known for so many good things like it's known for like bollywood it's known for yoga it's known for like mahatma gandhi which like i also have some questionable views on him controversial opinion there but um you know like i i think that it's known for so many amazing things and especially right now i think indians are really having a moment in the west and which i'm really excited about but i think what's so interesting to me is this perception of like what is hinduism I think Hinduism is known as this religion of like complete peace and like always um you know like meditating and doing yoga and like um and just like taking turmeric shots or something and that's kind of like the western perception of Hinduism a little bit. And I think what's interesting is it's always hard. It's always going to be hard when you have come to believe something about yourself as like a very core belief and someone fundamentally challenges that notion that you have of yourself, right? And I think that growing up, I always had a really good impression of Indians frankly because I think again, like we are very privileged in the West all the things I already said, most of us that move over to the West, we've come from a privileged caste anyway. We don't even recognize our own privilege. Me and you don't even know our caste. And I think that leads us to believe that caste doesn't exist because we don't know it. But again, we have the luxury of not having to know it because we we don't need to know it, right? And I, I think that this is also true, I will say, of a lot of people within India as well. Um, they don't also know necessarily what they are, where they're from. So I don't think this is necessarily just a diaspora problem. I think it's true of a lot of people in India. And one anecdote I want to say here, which came to mind, which I was frankly very confused by, was um, someone from India was staying with us uh, at my parents' house. And, and I was reading a book by Aziz Ansari. And, um, and she was, so she made a comment and she said, um, oh, who's the author? And then I, I said, Aziz Ansari, he's this Indian American comedian. And then I, I, I think I said, like, I think he's Tamil. And I, I'm not sure, actually, I, I should look it up. But I said, I think, I think he's Tamil. And her response was, I thought he was Muslim. And I was like, well, yes. And then she's like, okay, so he's Muslim. And I was like, no, he's both. And I know this is extremely sensitive. I know this is going to piss a lot of people off. It pissed me off too in the moment. I was extremely annoyed with her because I was like, I don't understand why in your head he can't be both. Because she kept saying, okay, so he's Muslim. And I was like, no, he is Tamil and he's Muslim. It's an and. It's not an or situation. It's an and situation. And then she's like, he can't be both. And she literally said that. And I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, you are from India. How can he not be both? Have you never met anyone that is like regionally something? but then they're also Muslim. And I was very taken aback by this. My dad got involved. Like, I think we were debating with her for so long. And she's like, in because as I understand it, Tamil is under Hinduism. And we're like, no, it isn't. Hinduism is a religion. Tamil is a region. Like it's a language. It's like a, a culture. Like it's a subculture. Like, what are you talking about? And, and I think like it was very confusing to me why she didn't understand. And I just dismissed her as like a stupid person, frankly. Um, and then I was talking to my other cousins about it. And they were 
also they're also from India and they're like but on the one hand they're like from your American point of view you're completely right it doesn't make sense that a person cannot be Tamil and Muslim at the same time and he's like but then and this is going to get into some very sensitive areas because I know the current state of Indian politics is probably not what anything you or I would want it to be Pritika but um, they were like if you ask an Indian person from India and if you said um, like what is a Punjabi they're they're going to tell you their specific sub subcast they're going to say i'm a jet punjabi i'm a sikh i'm a khatri and that's how they're going to answer and i was very like confused by this they said so if you ask a muslim person in india like are like what are you like they wouldn't just say i'm punjabi they would say i'm muslim that was their response and i was very confused by it and now that I've like done some more research and thought about it, I'm like, it's interesting that the way we even perceive this taxonomy actually varies depending on which side of the pond you're you're on, basically, because I think, again, like in our American point of view, we're like, of course, it's an and because we're all ends in this country. We are Indian and we're American and I'm like Hindu and I'm like non-religious all at the same time. You know, I'm all of those things. But I feel like in India, for whatever reason, or in our home countries, because um, as I said, this problem isn't limited to just India. I think what ends up happening is that they're they're so set in their ways that I think it can be hard to sort of like actually break that and i think that's one of the reasons why it can be very easy to dismiss that caste is an issue because no one is operating from the same understanding of what it even is and and that was like one of the things that i was like trying to mention earlier which is that we always use these terms in such a way where we're like sindhi punjabi is also a caste like my like me being a shatriya is also a caste like no one even frankly understands and i think people that are maybe actually living breathing it all the time like in their own country i think they've taken their existence Existence for granted, right? Because they're not walking around every single day being like, I am a Khatri Punjabi. Like you're not actively thinking that all second of the day until there is an attack on you for that thing that you are, or until you realize that you can't move past it in life. You've almost just like internalized it in such a way that like, it's hard to even like step out of it and like understand all the academics behind it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, sorry, I'm just like unpacking a lot of this as well because I think I have never thought of casteism as like inherent to a religion as much as I have thought of it as inherent to a society so it is interesting to see how at least in your research or in these anecdotes it seems very much that in an ideal state caste would actually not be able to have any place in a secular country yeah right? because it would it would take away from that idea of the constitution that Ambedkar himself envisioned for the country, right? To, to not have a place for this, much less in a society, but even less in a country that was more accepting of other religions, right? That to the extent that they should all be equal. So yeah, I'm just, that's what I'm thinking. I'm just, yeah, just really unpacking this. So Shabnam, but like from that point, I think a natural, a natural like question that would arise is, you know, we talked about how it's linked to Hinduism. We talked about the role that caste can even play in modern Indian society. And you touched on that a little bit. But if we were to really stay on this for a while, how do you, how have you viewed not maybe the evolution of caste, but just really what the role of it is in today's, in today's India, in, in modern society today? Yeah, so I'm I'm glad that we are really double clicking on this because I think again to those that think that caste is not an issue, I just want to read you guys some stats that Arun Dutti put together for this book, which were written in 2012. So you can imagine that in the 10 years since 2012, it might have only gotten worse, not better. Um, but she wrote that according to the National Crime Records Bureau, a crime is committed against a Dalit by a non-Dalit every 16 minutes, every day. Um, more than four untouchable women are raped by touchables every week. 13 Dalits are murdered and six Dalits are kidnapped. So in 2012 alone, um, and that was the year of the Nirbhaya um, case, the, the most like horrific case that I think like sent shockwaves throughout the whole world. Um, 1,574 Dalit women were raped. Um, and, and the rule here is usually that only 10% of rapes um, or other crimes against Dalits are even reported. So you can see how like it actually is going to be more like 10,574 women were raped that year. Um, and then 651 Dalits were murdered. And, and the one thing, again, to call out is that these are extremely conservative numbers because there are so many classifications in the system of like who even counts as a Dalit. So she does like 
a really like she makes this point that actually there's so much stuff that's happening, frankly. And the, the beginning of the book, I'm not going to recount it because it's like extremely difficult to tell. But um, the beginning of the book, she actually just tells a story of a person, right? She introduces you to this character who is a real character and her family. And she like sets the scene of, of this woman, her family, and the way they were treated by villagers just on a, acquiring a plot of land because they had made enough money to acquire this plot of land. Um, and then the, the fact that the women were raped, the sons were like mutilated, um, the sons were asked to rape their wife and their, the, the mother and the sister, and then they were all brutally murdered, the bodies burnt. And it's horrific, right? And, and this is like all the type of violence that is constantly happening by non-Dalits on Dalits. And, and the one thing she calls out is that these stats don't even account for anyone that has converted outside of the religion of Hinduism, because then the government is not counting them in that scheduled caste, as I mentioned. And so it's not, it's not mentioning like she, she called this, this case out of Bant Singh of Punjab, um, a Mazhabi Dalit Sikh who in 2005 had both his arms and a leg cleaved off for daring to file a case against the men who gang raped his daughter. So there's no separate statistics for triple amputees is like how she how she closes that sentence sentence off. And I know it's horrific. It's it's actually really awful to even think about. But I, I think that I think the, the reason I want to actually like make sure that I read those sentences out loud, despite the, how horrific they are, is that to anyone that is saying that caste is not an issue any longer, I think like it's just incredibly dismissive of so many people's pain. And I, I think there's a lot of genocide in the world happening in a variety of ways right now. But I think one of the least understood is caste because it seems so innocuous on its face in the same way that Cisco could not understand that this man could be um, experiencing this from his senior managers because it's not racism. It's not on the basis of religion. It's like there's almost nothing maybe like visibly different about this man compared to these other men that are like inflicting this pain on him at work is very similar to, I think, how the world has continued to misunderstand the problem of caste for a very long time. Well, and so when you think of that role, right, of caste in Indian modern society, there are also other voices that get amplified in India's story overall, right, that may have had different views about this, that often are either taught, that are discussed, that may in some ways have also disagreed with Ambedkar, right? And one of those voices is Gandhi's. So when you, what have you seen as being the great debate between Gandhi and Ambedkar? And could you just shed some light on that? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Um, and, and I think it's it's hard for me to keep some of my personal views out of this. So I will say this, these next few sentences will also be controversial. But I think when I think of Gandhi, I don't know at what age I came to this conclusion, but I think it was a long time ago. I, I, I think I have always had trouble idolizing him as um as like a great Indian, I, I think, frankly, I guess he's a great Indian for sure. Like in that he's known, he's very well known. But I think at the at the end of the day, to me, he was a politician. I think like, and I, I think I just want everyone to remember that. Like, let's not forget that the the image of Gandhi, and I, I think that's why it's funny that like Arunthi is way more harsh about him than than I will be able to put into words. But she she does a good job of pointing out that he is a politician, and like he created this this um this like sort of like image and perception about about himself and like literally Mahatma Mahatma means saint, you know, and, and it's something that he milked for a very long time. So like, that's why it's like funny because the, the book is called the doctor and the saint, like it's the debate between the doctor and the saint, right? Someone who is extremely logical and someone who's kind of relying on the emotional and the star power that he has, frankly. And what's interesting is that in so many of Gandhi's writings, and this is something that like anyone can look up, he is a huge proponent of the caste system. And he is a huge proponent Component of Hinduism. Everything that Gandhi has ever written in his life, um, the one area, maybe one of the only areas that he has been consistent is on continuously advocating a Hindu way of life um, in that like everything that one needs to know about Hinduism is is like is known. And, and I think the, the one thing that he actually, and there are passages in the book where he's quoted as saying this, which is that people should not be trying to get out of their, their current caste. Like the caste system is what makes India great. 
is, is one of the things that he's known as saying, because everyone was assigned a role and they shouldn't be aspiring to get out of that role. It is like apparently for the greater good that they have the role and to the point where it is quite patronizing. Actually, if you read his writing, um, because he understands that the untouchable is the untouchable. Right. And, and I think what's interesting is that this book does a really good job of analyzing how Gandhi, the figure even came to be, because when he was actually a political figure in South Africa, one of the things that he called out was that he didn't want the merchant Indians and the wealthy Indians to actually have to be categorized in the same way as the indentured servant Indians. He didn't want that because in his mind, caste is very important. In his mind, these distinctions are very important. And when Indians in South Africa were categorized in the same category as the native African people there, he took huge issue with it. He like wrote to, um, he wrote to the queen, he wrote to like all British imperial services. Consistently, his fight was that Indians are not the same as Black Africans. And he kept using that term, not the same as Black Africans. We deserve our own place in society. We cannot be treated the same way as the brute Black African is actually what he said. And he consistently said that like we don't have the same um, we don't we don't have the same intelligence power. Indians are superior. Right. So I, I think that's something to call out about Gandhi, the person. However, like I said, he is a politician. So he was pretty good at spinning his words in a way that might seem like he's very much a proponent of of untouchables and and at one point he worked to, um to like is to get rid of untouchability the practice of it which means like the practice of discriminating against them but even that was actually for political like a political ploy and i'll get into that in a second um but when when he says what qualities he wrote an essay called what qualities should the ideal bhangi possess and bhangi means um a member of the dalit community who specifically is like a scavenger. So like, that's like a nice term for it, but basically people that literally clean other people's urine and shit. And so he wrote, what qualities should such an honored servant of society exemplify in his person? In my opinion, an ideal bhangi should have thorough knowledge of the principles of sanitation. And the reason he's even mentioning this is that he's saying that the Brahmin's duty is to look after the sanitation of the soul. The bhangi's is that of the body of society. And I think it's like interesting that he is clever about the way in he, which he phrases these things, because on the one hand, to someone maybe less sophisticated, the patronization is not clear evident. It's almost like, yes, he's on my side. He's really thinking about me. But what he's saying is, in my opinion, an ideal bhangi should have thorough knowledge of the principles of sanitation. He should know how a right kind of latrine is constructed and the correct way of cleaning it. He should know how to overcome the, and destroy the odor of excreta and the various disinfectants to render them innocuous. He should likewise know the process of converting urine and night soil into manure. But that is not all. My ideal bhangi would know the quality of night soil and urine. He would keep a close watch on these and give timely warning to the individual concerned. And so I think what, what I want to call out here is that that last sentence to me is everything. Give timely warning to the individual concerned. At the end of the day, he still views this person's role as a servant in society to continuously serve the Brahmin, right? And, and I think what's interesting is that Ambedkar started calling Hinduism Brahminism, which I think is like very smart, frankly, because I, I think it, it explains a lot because a lot of times when people are like, these things are in the Shastras, they're in the Vedas. I think even today, and even with my Brahmin friends, I'm like, who has read this stuff? Like, do you guys even know what's in here? Do any of us know? And and there's like a lot in, in like sort of like Hindu society, which is like, only the Brahmins are allowed to read it or only the father can pass it to the son and no one else can hear it. And this is something I consistently hear from my Brahmin friends. But it's interesting that a whole society has conducted itself around these Hindu tenets that only a select people are allowed to know. And there's extreme violence against anyone from the Dalit community that might try to quote a Veda, like rip their tongue out and things like that, because they're speaking the sacred language and they're not allowed to do so. So I, I think like the one thing that I did want to call out here, the point of this huge uh, this diatribe that I went on is basically to say that I, I think that he was a politician. He was really good at like framing things in a way that like may not seem offensive, but actually was. And there's like plenty of examples in here of like how he even like tried to go live in a community of untouchables to show people that he was um, very much one of them. But he actually didn't eat any of the food that they gave him. He would not like he would get the food delivered to him by his own people because he wouldn't want to eat any of their food. And the, he actually had them make him a new house 
um, in in this like shelter so that it looked like he was doing this, but he actually wasn't. And and the the last thing I'll wrap up with here, which I think was one of the most important things I realized about the book is let's talk about how this fits into modern India. So I think we all know that there was um, a partition involved um, with with the with how the modern India came about. And and I think that like one thing that I'm starting to realize is that it's very easy to say in retrospect, like, why did the British divide India? Or like, why did India get divided? It, it shouldn't have. I think the more I read, the more I realize that these issues were actually incredibly complex. And every constituency had a different idea of what is the ideal India. So I think like on the one hand, there was the Muslim League and they were, you know, very much concerned. And, and I think, again, rightfully so, given the state of modern Indian politics, I think it makes sense to me now that they were concerned that they would always be treated as a minority group in a Hindu majority country. There was that concern. There was the concern of the Sikhs, which eventually they they tried to have their own rebel rebellion, again, probably rightfully so, given that it was a majority Hindu country. And then there was also this very big question of how how should these seats be allocated, even in a Hindu majority country, um, given that there is the Dalit question, right? And I think Ambedkar tried his best to make sure that there was some representation for, for the Dalits. And, and I think this is why I've always had trouble respecting Gandhi as a politician, because in my mind, this is a personal opinion, not academic. I feel like he was always throwing a tantrum of some sort where he's like, I'm going to starve myself. Everybody watch me. And I'm like, why is that your go-to technique? So anyway, so um, what, what actually happened was that Ambedkar had put forward a proposal for the Dalit community to have their own electorate and that they could have their own seats in Congress so that they wouldn't have to compete with um, with a, a Hindu constituency in order to win seats, because let's be real, that would have, wouldn't have ever happened. Um, but Gandhi did not want that to happen. And in protest, he starved himself. Um, he went on another one of his satyagrahas to, to show that he's fasting. And this was while he was in jail. And the Dalit community actually became extremely um, scared that if anything happened to him, if he ended up dying, it would be on them. It would and and their position in society would be even lower than than it originally was because they would be known as the people that killed the saint, frankly. And and so they ended up having to back down because of this fast. So I think it's very difficult to say that this was like a really good political move or it was fair. I think a lot of it was like the politics of the moment. Shabram, I feel like I'm so useless on this podcast because I'm learning so much. And I think the point of a podcast is to be able to like share ideas. Um, look, I do think like Gandhi had his place in India. And of course, there are people who think differently about this. But yeah. uh, I actually didn't know that he had viewed um, he had viewed his own pecking order of communities in terms of like what was acceptable caste to him, so to speak, versus like what are communities that deserved in some ways the segregation that he so valiantly was was trying to fight for India in the first place. So there definitely obviously is hints of um, hints of double standards, but I actually did not know that 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 is how he had referred to the African American community and the African community in South Africa at the time. So that's very interesting to know. And I think that kind of segues well into our last question, which is, you know, when we've, we've gone through a lot of topics on this podcast, right? A lot of them are your views. A lot of them is what you've been reading. But more broadly, there seems to be, you know, buckets of racism versus casteism and then a thoughtful response about what really how, how are they encompassed versus what are the parallels? So if you were to say, if you were to just think through how does uh, racism, how does this relate to racism versus casteism, what would you think about and what parallels would you think are most important to draw here? I think there's a lot of parallels, but I think the problem is that society has treated them like they're two very different things. And actually, there was a pretty big uproar, I want to say, um, at the UN Durban conference in 2001, um, where caste was not addressed in the resolution that the UN came up with around issues of racism. And that actually, like, even now when I Google it, like there were like so many articles written about how like casteism is not addressed because it's considered a uniquely Indian problem. And I think that's like actually very interesting to me that like, because it's a uniquely Indian problem, like it, even though a lot of articles say things like, well, this is a uniquely Indian problem 260 million people suffer from. And, and, and that's like arguably a little bit more than Western democracies where like racism is more of a problem because there's like multiple races at play. I think it's funny that that wasn't really like called a about and and I think that actually that doesn't mean that the West was not being sensitive to Indian society. I think what that means is 
again, like I said, it's very difficult to see a caste issue because it doesn't look visibly different, you know, or the people don't look visibly different from each other, at least not to not to maybe the average Westerner. I think an Indian person or a Pakistani person or a Bangladeshi person would be like, what are you talking about? We look wildly different. I'm light skinned and they're dark skinned, you know. Um, but anyway, um, sorry, slight uh, dark joke there. But anyway, um, so so basically. I think one thing that was interesting also was that these parallels were actually being drawn, at least in a way that like was written before, like as early as like 1873, um, Jyotiba Pule dedicated this this essay called Gulamgiri um, to to basically like this this problem. Gulamgiri means slavery, which which I think is like very interesting. And he says the good people of the United States. So he's writing about this in 1873. The good people of the United States, as a token of admiration for their sublime interested and self-sacrificing devotion in the cause of Negro slavery and with an earnest desire that my countrymen may take their noble example as their guide in the emancipation of their Shudra brothers from the trammels of Brahmin thraldom. So I think it's interesting that as early as the 1800s and 1873, basically this person in India is looking to the West to be this beacon of this is what equality is, right? And of course, we in America know that it's not as it's not all glamorous as it seems. But I, I thought I thought that that was that was very telling in that like even this person sitting in India understood the parallel of the Negro slaves, as he put it, to the same situation as the Dalit slaves to to Brahmins. And I think the other thing that Michelle Alexander calls out in this book in uh, The New Jim Crow that is like incredibly interesting also is that what she's saying is that she she like mentions this person like Jarvis Cotton and he says like he cannot vote like his father grandfather great grandfather and great great grandfather he has been denied the right to participate in our electoral democracy and basically like the reason she's saying this is that his great great grandfather was um, born a slave and so he wasn't able to to vote his great grandfather was beaten to death by the Ku Klux Klan for attempting to vote his grandfather was prevented from voting by Klan intimidation so. Now we're in the in the case of like basically we're past the civil rights movement and and you're, we're still seeing that like voter suppression happens in the U.S. This is what that is. Um, his father was barred from voting by poll taxes and literacy tests. Again, voter suppression happening. And today, Jarvis Cotton cannot vote because he, like many black men in the United States, has been labeled a felon and is currently on parole. And this is one of the the, the problems that we in a in a modern American society. It's another problem that we don't recognize because things feel like they are free and everyone has access to voting and everyone has access to information. And yet I think like we are blissfully ignorant because it doesn't pertain to us that there is a community of people that are living in mass incarceration and they'll never be able to vote. And things like the war on drugs was designed to kind of target certain people, which like make it, it was very easy to target people that look a certain way, even though the stats showed that there's as many, if not more, white drug dealers in the U.S. as compared to like black and brown drug dealers. But the people getting disproportionately arrested were black men. And so I, I think that's that's like something I just wanted to call out. And, and I don't know if there's there's like a solution here, but but it's like something that I did want to say. And I, I also want to wrap up by saying that I know I've alluded to the fact that um, casteism is not a non-issue in, in Pakistan or Bangladesh. But one of the other things that that I think is is worth calling out also is that, like I said, even converting to another religion doesn't necessarily solve this problem. And, and the reason I want to call that out, too, is because I think often and this is something I only recently put together in my head. That's why I want to share with you guys that there's often this belief um, that. Hindus in Pakistan are always in menial positions and they are treated very badly. And I think on a surface level, it's very easy to make the assumption that it's because they live in a majority Muslim country. And in the same way that Muslims are discriminated against in India, Hindus are discriminated against in Pakistan. There probably is an element of that. However, I think after reading um, this book and after thinking a little bit more deeply about the problem, I became aware of one more thing, which is that in 1947, the government of Pakistan, despite the bloodbath and the absolute 
chaos that was partitioned, like she actually phrases as phrases it as the government of partition and Pakistan kept its head about one thing, which was that they actually retained uh, um, a large population of untouchables on purpose. Um, and they didn't want them to cross the border into India because um, they they actually thought that they will also need these services. So they actually labeled them as essential workers because they would still need the services of people um, cleaning toilets of cleaning the streets of like sort of like keeping the sanitary conditions up to date. So the untouchables were retained and not provided licenses to move to India. And in Arunati's like phrasing, it's like privileged caste Hindus got to move to India, but untouchables had to remain in, in Pakistan, which is interesting because now that makes sense. If people now put it again in context for me that a lot of times Hindus in Pakistan are in medial positions. I think this is just the classic caste system at play, which is that they weren't necessarily demoted through the generations is that they haven't been promoted because it's the caste system more so than religion that's kept them in their place which is like you're consistently like your dad is a street sweeper you're a street sweeper and that's just how this this legacy continues Shabnam there's been so much food for thought the one thing I will tell you is that I think it'd be really helpful for you to list all of these resources uh, not just the books you've read but also what you've referenced uh, helpful articles on the internet in the comment section so that people can read I know that these are nuanced debates. I know that your perspective will ultimately be different from almost every single one of your listeners. Um, I don't even have a perspective on this yet because I'm so willfully ignorant, but it has been so wonderful to learn. But I think to be able to access these and like have an educated debate would be really, really wonderful for people who follow the podcast. So, so please, please, please post them. Yeah, definitely. And sorry, I know I talked a lot, you guys, um, oh. but I just wanted to talk about everything I've learned. So I um, I am definitely still very open to having someone on that can speak to these topics even more intelligently um, than I did. I was basically just referencing all the material I've, I've read. But again, don't want to be insensitive to anyone that's actually gone through these issues. I would love to have you on um, as well as anyone else that's more of an expert than I am. And if I have gotten something wrong and I've misunderstood something, I'm very happy to be corrected. Um, I just ask that you guys give me the benefit of the doubt. My intention is not to hurt or harm, um, but I'm always, always happy to be proven wrong and happy to have an intellectual, um, open-minded conversation. So please do reach out and don't hesitate. And, and, and I think the best thing we can do for society is continue to make this a dialogue because all of these conversations have frankly been a monologue for a very long time. Yeah. And I think the only thing I'd add to that, like Shabnam, you're 100% right. I think the only thing I'd add is that I think you're also willing to be shown resources that are not written by people who got to like author most of history, right? Like you're looking, you're willing to read, you know, more regional literature that exists, that is accurate, that is passed down from like ancestors of people who've been fighting these battles. So, so definitely I, I think we should be looking for those as well. Agreed. Agreed. Definitely. Thanks for calling that out. Well, thank you so much for having me, Shubs, and for always being the kind of friend who teaches and questions. It's a really great treat. Of course. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for for listening. And like I said, please feel free to get in touch if you have anything to say about this episode. Um, Very happy to hear it. Um, So yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. And please continue to follow Cultured or Not on Instagram. And you can follow me at Shabnam Galati if you like. Thanks. Bye.